Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. What is former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney best known for? We discuss the housing crisis from a number of different angles, worst anthem singers ever, and March Padness returns. Enjoy the GMH podcast. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. We are remembering the life and legacy of former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney today. Our country's 18th Prime Minister died peacefully yesterday, surrounded by family. He was 84. He won the largest majority in the history of Canada back in 1984. 211 of 282 seats. A tsunami of blue from coast to coast to coast. And he was re-elected again in 1988 and eventually stepped down in 1993 after losing to then-liberal leader Jean Chrétien. And the time has also come to thank you, to say goodnight, and au revoir. To all of you, I say in the words of Yeats, think where man's glory most begins and ends, and say my glory was that I had such friends. A charismatic speaker, a great leader of this nation. David Terrence is the Vice President of National Strategic Communications at Enterprise Canada and also a former communications strategist in the office of Prime Minister Stephen Harper and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. David, welcome back to the show. How are you? Hey, good morning, Rick. Thank you for having me on. Your memories of Brian Mulroney. Well, you know, I think the, the from the broadest sense, Brian Mulroney was a as a consequential prime minister. And I, you know, I was, I was texting and calling some folks last night who were, who have worked with him and, and, and known uh, the former prime minister Maroney and trying to find what's the best, what's the best word to describe. And I say it's consequential. You see a man who was, he was given a, a moment of time where he had real power. And he said, I'm going to use this window and try to do some big things. And in some very profound, profound ways, he succeeded. Uh, we take for granted things like how free trade has uplifted so many people in this country. Well, that was that was Brian Mulroney, right? He he had to fight through intense opposition to make that happen. Or maybe a lesser leader would have said, "No, I'm going to kick this down the road." And he was consequential in the way as well that when he was prime minister, the voice of the Canadian prime minister mattered on the world stage. When the Canadian prime minister said something or did something, other leaders listened. And I think it's. Just a certain amount of pride that you know, it, it, Canadians just say, "Oh, well, we're 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 a smaller power, and and you know, we'll never stand up to these bigger countries." Well, his time in office proved that with the right kind of leadership, the voice of Canada very much does matter around the world. The term "big things," as you mentioned, rings true, and that was one of the things that our current Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said yesterday. Mulroney was someone who had the courage to do big things, and and he was bang on. Whether it was free trade. Whether it was introducing the GST, which you know all these years later still controversial, um, but he had that courage uh, for sure. And 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 I think we it, it, we want to take a look. And and of course, you know, in the in the aftermath of his passing, we want to remember the 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 most positive parts of his legacy. But parts of his legacy are things he didn't succeed at. Whether it was the Constitution or the impact that the GST had on you know what happened to his political party. Um, Sometimes you go aim for big things and it doesn't work out. Um, but, you know, I think what's the line that Wayne Gretzky used to say, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Brian Maroney was a prime minister who was never afraid to take that shot if he thought the end result was worth it for Canada. 
And that absolutely is worth celebrating. Back in the uh, mid 80s, you know, he's he's now the prime minister. Free trade is being discussed uh, with the United States and, of course, you know, Mexico in the mix as well. And it's interesting that then liberal leader John Turner said at the time that it would turn Canada into America's 51st state. Not so and not even close. Absolutely. And, and this comes down to the whole idea of and, and it's one of those words that you throw politicians around vision. Oh, I have this vision, I have that vision. Um, not every politician has a vision, and not every politician with a vision has a vision that we may agree with or we, we may think is right. But I think one of the real, real measures of, of someone, whether it's a political leader or a leader in business or in a community, is are you able to look around the corner? Right? Because I think anybody can, can, can see a problem, react to a problem, and live your life that way. But to say, you know what, what we're doing today will, will have an impact three years, five years, 10 years from now, and be willing to actually see what the long-term impact was. And I, I, I mean, whether it was acid rain, the fight against apartheid, whether it was free trade, like we mentioned, time and time again, Maroney had that. And I, I say this to someone, listen, I, I'm one of the people who's been critical of some decisions he made over the years, but I don't think anybody can take away the fact that he had a vision and he had the courage to act on it. David Terrence is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. David is the VP of National Strategic Communications at Enterprise Canada and the former communications strategist in the office of Prime Minister Stephen Harper. It was just a few years ago that NAFTA was renegotiated with, with Canada, the U.S. and Mexico, and, and Justin Trudeau taps Brian Mulroney to help out. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's, that's to the credit of the current prime minister. Um you know, it was the the Trump administration was a uh, unique uh, <laughs> and quite frankly not not before seen challenge to Canadian decision makers, and certainly the notion that uh, you know if we wanted to talk in the most crass political sense, a you know a gaggle of kind of left leaning Canadian progressive liberals probably weren't going to be able to come with the kind of credibility uh, or or arguments that could influence administration to make accept the exceptions Canada needed. So, you know, what you do? Well, you broaden your Rolodex and you go to someone who does have deep connections in Ottawa and you and you recruit him on your side. And again, to Maroney's credit, he said yes. And, and he played a key role in helping preserve the free trade agreement he negotiated. And which, again, is, is one of those things where we may not think about it day to day, but Rick, so many jobs in this country and so many businesses in this country depend on that agreement. And, and you may not feel it day to day, but when you get your paycheck, you know, every couple of weeks, uh, I think a lot of things you realize that that paycheck is in no small part due to the creation and the, the durability of free trade. Yeah, we would be in a much different place if, uh, if the original NAFTA and now the new version did not exist, that's for sure. David, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciative of your time this morning. Thank you, Rick. Have a good one. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's tackle what's happening here in Hamilton. The biggest debate of them all currently regarding housing, apart from just building more homes, is this housing versus parking debate in Stony Creek. When it comes to the, you know, the, the final discussion about where our priorities lie, how can our priority not lie? with providing housing for people. And that debate will be had another day, or at least the vote will be had another day after this cybersecurity incident at City Hall kind of deferred that and a bunch of other decisions to a later date. We've had 
other projects in this community hit roadblocks. The residential tower project at King and Sanford, a $150 million development that would eventually be gifted to the city, rejected in part because it's too tall. We've had opposition to a developer's plan to demolish an old church downtown across the street from the downtown arena because of the heritage designation. Uh, Former school sites are there. Their land is available, but no one seems to be doing anything. How hard is it to build a home in Hamilton? Well, let's ask a developer. Mike Collins-Williams is the CEO of the West End Home Builders Association and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Mike, welcome back. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm uh, fantastic. Is it hard, Mike, to build a home in this city? It's difficult. It's not impossible. You know, we've got a few cranes up downtown, unlike uh, previous decades. And, um, you know, housing starts were pretty good in Hamilton last year. But I can tell you that sales have fallen off a cliff in the higher interest rate environments. And we're probably going to be building fewer homes in Hamilton the next few years as a result of that. Money aside, and obviously the, the the rise of interest rates has had a detrimental impact on developers saying, all right, let's push forward with this project. But we have NIMBYism in this community. We have city council putting up some roadblocks or asking some developers to change their plans due to a variety of issues. What is the biggest stumbling block or is it all that in a nutshell? It's a variety of things. But ultimately, it comes down to politics. Um, Housing is a unique sort of product in communities like Hamilton and across Canada that every housing unit practically requires a political approval. If one were building bars, if one were building furniture, if one were um, uh, producing, you know, product X, Y or Z, they don't need to go to City Hall and get a political approval every time that they produce another car or another um, piece of equipment on a factory floor. So. You know, you you mentioned earlier some of the the challenges, whether it's school sites, whether it's parking, um, whether it's the height of buildings downtown or, 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 you know, perhaps a boundary expansion that all of these different housing types, whether it's high rise, mid rise, low rise, missing middle, um, all of them are very politically sensitive as they navigate the process to try to get an approval and then ultimately try to get built. You mentioned the missing middle, and this is part of the exclusionary zoning aspect in which neighborhoods uh, for, 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 uh, you know, uh, the large portion of this community are single family homes. And this exclusionary zoning is going to allow for more duplexes and triplexes and fourplexes. Is that going to help? Every little bit helps. And, um, you know, historically across Canada and, and the United States, for that matter, Um, Most communities built in the 20th century um, were for single-family homes only, and the zoning prevented uh, other types of housing, uh, and that's why it's called the missing middle. Quite frankly, it's been missing from our housing stock and and the variety of different options available. Uh, And when it comes to the cost of housing, uh, a single-family home is typically quite a bit more expensive than a a duplex, triplex uh, townhomes. So, The idea behind some of the zoning changes happening, not just in Hamilton, but right across the province and across our country, is to um, eliminate that exclusionary aspect and allow for other types of low-rise, smaller-scale housing that would still fit in the character of the neighborhood and not change the dynamic of the neighborhood too much. So in Hamilton going forward, you are going to start seeing some more townhomes being built in existing neighborhoods and other options like laneway suites, basement apartments, et cetera. 
And, you know, that's going to provide more options, uh, especially for young families just starting out that uh, can't quite save up or get the down payment or, or qualify for a mortgage on a, on a single family home. We're talking about building homes in Hamilton on 900 CHML with our guest, Mike Collins-Williams, the CEO of the West End Home Builders Association. It must be frustrating at times, and maybe all the time, when, you know, there's so much pressure to build homes. We have a housing crisis. We have these many homes to build this year. we got to get, you know, one and a half million homes in the next 10 years, as the premier of this province likes to say. From a developer standpoint, you're, you're handcuffed unless the city is willing to participate, right? There's a lot of challenges, and you mentioned a few of them at the top of the segments that, um, you know, we talk a lot about intensification. Uh, politicians in Hamilton have talked a lot about supporting intensification. But when the rubber hits the road and the actual proposals come forward, uh, the politics are difficult. Um, we have a height limit in downtown Hamilton of 30 stories, which quite frankly is ridiculous when you look at other communities across the 905, be it Mississauga Vaughan, uh, even Oakville is building 50-story towers uh, right near their ghost, uh, ghost station. You mentioned some school sites. We have uh, a number of school sites in Hamilton that were declared surplus. The city plans actually target them towards housing. A great example is the Delta High School, which is directly on a future LRT line. And it's, uh, you know, they, they proposed higher density there to take advantage of a future multi-billion dollar transit line. And that's going to the Ontario Land Tribunal because the local politics were too difficult to navigate through City Hall. Um, and, you know, we have to decide what our priorities are. We are in a housing crisis. We are not in a parking lot crisis. We're not in a shadow crisis or a neighborhood character crisis. The priority for City Hall really should be to get more housing units built and try to get them through the system as fast as possible so that we can deliver keys to needy families. Absolutely. Mike, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Enjoy the day and the weekend. Thank you. Have a great weekend. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. When cities meet their home building targets, according to the provincial government, they receive funding from the province. Premier Ford, by the way, rumored to be in Hamilton at some point this month with money in hand for the Building Faster Fund. How much of that money is going to come to Hamilton? Well, that remains to be seen. But Burlington's mayor says the qualification process is inappropriate after the municipal affairs minister said that city was not eligible to receive funding. Say what? They're building homes in Burlington. The mayor of Burlington, Marianne Mead Ward, joins us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Madam Mayor, good morning. How are you? Hello, Marianne. Do we have you? I think I think I we, here. I think we got you now. <laughs> why is uh, why is Burlington ineligible for this building faster funds money? The province counts foundations poured, and we have said since this fund was introduced that municipalities don't control when a foundation gets poured. We issue permits and we approve plans, and uh, so but they're still using that metric. And this isn't a Burlington problem. This is an Ontario problem. For fully half of the municipalities that received housing targets will also not receive a dime from the Building Faster Fund. So this starts to entrench inequities across the province where municipalities are trying really hard to do everything we can to enable developers to get shovel in the ground because that's what we do. So measuring foundations is the wrong metric to judge a municipality. But secondly, uh, we've also heard from many mayors across the province that 
the uh, Canadian Mortgage uh, Housing and Mortgage Corporation, which counts foundations, they're wildly inaccurate. And in our own case, by by half, we're you know they've counted us at at around three hundred. We've got six hundred. So if you're going to use a metric, use the right one, and for heaven's sakes, make sure it is accurate. The uh, provincial housing minister, Paul Calandra, said uh, we want shovels in the ground and uh, a permit doesn't equate to someone moving into a home, which, you know, I can understand where he's coming from. But if you don't offer cities funding, those shovels aren't going to get in the ground. Well, that's the issue. It becomes a closed loop of uh, really inappropriate policy. So we we don't put shovel in the ground and and this narrative that the only thing standing between a young family or a low-income couple or a newcomer uh, and the house, the affordable house of their dream is municipal permit process is absolutely nonsense. We, uh, we, we issue permits. So judge us by what we do and then understand why uh, the development industry is unable to come in and pull those permits because they're the ones that put uh, the foundations in the ground. We right now at the city of Burlington have 42 hundred approved permits just waiting for developers to put those shovels in the ground. So that is, that is the issue. We all want shovels in the ground, but until we have a thoughtful, accurate conversation around who does what in the housing continuum uh, and, and understand where those roadblocks are, we're not going to get to our target and simply beating up on municipalities and punishing municipalities that are doing everything that is within our power to do is not going to help. Yeah, it certainly takes two to tango. You need the developer to actually do the work after the permit is issued. Absolutely. And, and that's, you know, and we understand the challenges they're under, too. Don't I, you know, I'm not, I'm not faulting the development industry either. The high interest rates, mm-hmm. uh, supply chain issues, labor issues, the, the cost of everything. The, you know, construction costs went up 33% in the last couple of years. They have real challenges, too. So if the government wants to incent getting a shovel in the ground, then talk to the folks in the development industry to understand the pressures they're under and why they're unable to do that. The housing crunch is the focus of our discussion with Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Is Burlington in a bit of a pickle when it comes to space? Are you allowed to or are you looking at building uh, up as opposed to out, there's there's not much, at least looking at a map, there's not much outward you can go. No, we are fully half rural, and that's Greenbelt protected rural lands. Uh, council, this council and previous councils have made it very clear that we will do everything we can to protect that. We have no interest, and we will fight any expansion of our boundary, which means we are built out. And we've been built out for 10 or 15 years. That means all our development is complex multi-residential infill within the urban boundary. These are the hardest, most difficult uh, uh, developments to bring on stream. Uh, It's not Greenfield subdivision where you can count, you know, foundation after foundation. And there's even been some discrepancy around is one foundation for a 300 unit uh, apartment counted as 300 or what? And so we've raised that issue too, that, that municipalities like ours and those that are increasingly moving to multi-residential, uh, high-density, uh, you know, uh, developments are going to have even harder time qualifying for the very funding that we need to enable that. All the while, we only have a minute to chew on this. The province is counting long-term care beds towards their housing starts, which seems insane. You know what? We'll, we'll take any measure that helps us get the funding, but you know, the whole <laughs> system... 
the whole system needs a, a do-over uh, because they are measuring municipalities by something out of our control and the measure is not accurate. So we will continue to send that message. We expect we're going to get that monthly letter from the minister for some time. And then all of a sudden there'll be thousands of units because uh, a developer was able to pour a multi-residential high-rise tower. And we have uh, over 20,000 uh, under review right now in our system, 20,000 units. Our target is only 2,900 a year. So we are confident that we can do our part to enable that. But again, we do not put shovels in the ground. The developers do. Madam Mayor, good luck with this. Thanks for the time. Enjoy the weekend. Thank you so much. That is Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward on GMH. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's talk a little more about housing in this province. Why on earth is it taking the government so long to get these programs off the ground? Just the opposite, actually. We're seeing the largest number of, uh, of homes being built across the province of Ontario. We're seeing year after year those numbers increasing, more, more purpose-built rentals, more shovels in the ground than at any other time in the province's uh, history. Ford government's long promising to build one and a half million homes over 10 years, but they're going to get a little creative with their math. Here to explain is Colin DeMello, our Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Colin, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. So from what we understand is that the province is going to be counting more than just new homes being built. Can you explain? Yeah, that's right. So at the very beginning of this exercise, when the Ford government first set its targets for building 1.5 million homes by 2031, uh, they first started counting housing starts. And housing start is defined by the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation as when the concrete is actually poured. So that, you know, really marks the true beginning of the structure. But it, the there are a variety of factors that have left the housing construction industry kind of lagging in 2023, right? Interest rates went up, people kind of pulled back a little bit, and developers stopped developing as much because the market kind of softened a little bit. So the province has not been able to meet its housing targets. So now they've turned to a bit of creative accounting to reach their destination. So they started counting housing starts. They started counting basement units and other rental units that were created uh, on on people's properties. So maybe a laneway house. Uh, They started counting that towards their goals. But then they also started counting long-term care beds as an actual home. And when you start to look at the numbers, so in 2023, the government had set a target of 110,000 homes to be built in the province. They had about 89,000 housing starts, another 9,800 basement units and laneway houses. And then they also counted 9,800 long-term care beds towards their total housing targets. Now, the government is making, you know, they're they're defending this policy by saying, look, you know, for the people who need to move into a long-term care home, that bed is effectively their home. And that's why they're counting it as a home, because the province needs a whole variety of of um, of, of homes to be built. Uh, but, you know, if you if you talk to the average person, an average family of four, maybe a young couple that's about to have a kid, and you ask them, can you move into a long-term care bed? <laughs> Obviously, the answer is no. So, so that's where there is a, a huge discrepancy here between what actually counts as a home in this province, what you think of as a home, and what the province thinks of as a home. And there's a huge gulf between Absol- the two. Absolutely. We only got about a minute. D- d- is this going to f- uh, impact funding to municipalities? 
Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why the province may have done it, right? The province um, has this huge funding pool that it wants to give the municipalities in order to uh, convince them to you know build more housing, but to reward reward them for the housing they build. And so um, by kind of pumping up those numbers with the long-term care beds, municipalities are getting more funding for the province. But in some uh, areas, some cities and towns, as an example, they have more long-term care beds than they actually have homes that have been built, yet they're still qualifying for this funding. So it really kind of uh, you know, begs the question of whether or not this is the government kind of juking the stats a little bit, right? Kind of inflating the numbers in order to give out this funding and to make themselves look a little bit better. Um, that is something that the opposition has claimed the government is doing. They're fluffing the numbers here. It's really wild. You can read more in Colin's story with Isaac Callen online, globalnews.ca and 900chml.com. Colin, always appreciative of your time. Have a great day and the weekend. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, yesterday, if you missed it on the roundtable which happens each and every day after the news at 8.30, we had a couple of audio clips of a new candidate for worst national anthem ever. Now, I'll give her all the credit in the world. Kinsley Murray tried her best. She banged out the U.S. national anthem at an Indiana Pacers game the other night. And while the video of her singing has gone viral, because everyone's making fun of it, again, she was all in. Kinsley Murray is eight years old. Here's a little snippet of her belting out the Star Spangled Banner at an Indiana Pacers game. As I said, she was, she was right in there. She was right in there. And I thought that, you know, overall, a really good job. Much better than I would, that is for sure. No doubt about that. And again, she's eight. But she also sung, and I'm not sure why, Oh Canada as well. Because it wasn't like Indiana was facing the Raptors. At least I don't think. I think they're facing the Pelicans. But here she is singing Oh Canada. You know, great job. Uh, held on to some of the notes just a little too long, but my oh mine. Uh, I'll give her all the credit in the world. She she belted out like she was loving it. Back in 1994, we played this clip on the roundtable uh, as well yesterday. Dennis Casey Parks, a lounge singer from Las Vegas, sung O Canada before the Las Vegas posse took on the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. And he did so without ever having heard. O Canada before, so he just kind of made up his own tune. O Canada, 
We stand on guard for thee. still going. There we go. Thank you, sir. Carl Lewis during an NBA game between the Chicago Bulls and the Nets in 1993. Oh, 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 say can you see? So he started out well, in all fairness. Well, pretty good. But then the wheels started to come off. And the Rockets... <laughs> no, he didn't really. <laughs> Comedian Roseanne Barr attempting to sing the Star Spangled Banner at a Padres game in 1990. Oh, it was horrible. Oof. Not good. Not good at all. Michael Bolton actually forgot the words to the U.S. National Anthem. This happened during the ALCS between the Red Sox and Yankees in 2003 at Fenway Park. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Sometimes the mind just wanders. And then there's this from Flava Flav. should have just wrapped it to be honest it might have been a lot more entertaining some of the worst renditions of the star spangled banner and yeah we'll throw O canada in there as well you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml i only know this because i've heard it from a couple of different women there's nothing worse than going to the washroom say at the mall and you forget to bring a pad you thought you had a menstrual product in your purse but you're out now imagine this, you're, you're in the washroom at the mall and you know you don't have a pad because you can't afford it. You're spending your money on your rising rent or your increased mortgage rates, the higher cost of food that you're buying for your family. And, you know, it's all adding up and you've put yourself second for the betterment of others, i.e. your family members. And there are far too many people going through that exact same scenario each and every day. So with that as the backdrop, It's incredible to know that there is a program that focuses on this and has helped many people already, and it's called March Padness. Here to talk about it is Olivia Mackay, the president of the CHML Children's Fund and the creator of March Padness. Olivia, good morning. How are you? 
Good morning. How are you? I'm, I'm good. good. Thank you. Good, good. How did this all start? Um, I was on the phone with a charity. They had called me and they were talking about when they should apply. And they were also bringing up like um, that most people don't donate um, hygiene products, menstrual products. And I had just suffered a miscarriage. So this was probably January, February of 2019. And I'd suffered the miscarriage in December of 2018. And I knew exactly what I needed during those, you know, six weeks and the products I needed and, you know, the cost of everything. And she was on the phone telling me that most families, when they are out shopping, that they have to put back menstrual products or personal hygiene products because it's either put that back or there's no food on the table. She also mentioned how girls miss school because of this reason. And I was just like, it just touched me so much knowing everything that I'd gone through. And then also knowing that there are women out there who were going through the same thing as me that couldn't afford these products. And I just needed to make something that was negative in my life into a positive. So I just like stewed on it. And I was like, I need to do something. And I was just like, I need to have something fun with it. And take that stigma out of, you know, a men- like someone who has a period or who needs menstrual products. And I just remember it just popped in my brain and I was like, March Padness, like I just need to do a, a, a hygiene drive. And it started in 2019. We were able to do it in 2020, not to as much succession because that's when COVID hit. It took a pause in 2021 just due to COVID. And again, we launched it in 2022 and, you know, and so on. And now we're on our fifth year of this. And Essential Aid is um, our partner in all of this, who who will receive any funding we receive in the month of March through the Children's Fund, plus all the products that come through. So are we asking people to donate money, to donate products? How does it work? So either or. So you can donate money through the Children's Fund. So you can text the word donate to 30333. Or you can go to our website uh, to the March Padness page and you can find our Canada Helps link and all the money collected will be donated in April to uh, Essential Aid. You can also drop off products here at the radio station as well as Building Dreams Contracting. They're one of our partners and all their information is online as well. So throughout the whole month of March, you know, we're taking Pads, tampons, diapers, shampoo, conditioner, body wash, laundry or dish detergent, deodorant, body creams, toothbrushes, toilet paper. And you know those reusable bags that you don't know what to do with because you have a million of them? <laughs> Drop them off. Because a lot of families do forget to bring their uh, bags to essential aid, and this will help them as well. So if you're unable to donate anything, but you can donate bags, that is a great help as well. Phenomenal advice. Uh, Olivia McKay is the president of the CHML Children's Fund, the founder of March Padness. It runs throughout the month of March. And you can go to our website for lots more information. Just click on the March Padness icon. So five years later, and I know Shoppers Drug Mart is in now, Essential Aid benefiting from this. Many people are benefiting from this. Did you think it was going to be this big this soon? No. And last year was a record year. We raised um, over $16,000 in products and donation, which was a great help uh, to Essential Aid. I remember Kristen telling me in December that they had just used up everything they had collected from their menstrual product 
um, from their program just in that December. So that helped them because the numbers are going up. People are going to these food banks more. They're going to these programs more. And these charities just can't keep up with the demand. So anything that we can help and get the word out and, you know, just talking to people. And I, you know, and I explained to them, you know, I had a miscarriage and I'm like, don't, don't feel sorry for me. Things happen. And, you know, and I'm happy to make that into something like this that I can go and help others. And, you know, and others can relate to something like that. And even if it's just buying a bar of soap, you're just contributing. I remember a gentleman last year um, heard it on the radio and mailed a bunch of toothbrushes. Hmm to us. And just like little things like that. Um, it just makes me happy that everyone is willing to help and, you know, the words getting out there. And, you know, there are programs around the city. And I remember after launching this, a coworker is like, do you, do you see this? And I'm like, yes. And I'm like, but we started this first. <laughs> uh, I was like, so it's, you know, it's great to see that there's that, you know, um, I remember the taxes coming off of buying a, a pack of pads because they are expensive. Like it, these things do add up. And it's sad that families have to make that choice, whether to have food on the table or personal hygiene products. So anything that we can do to help them get through that struggle, you know, and just, it puts a smile on my face and just, it, it, I just love helping the community as much as I can. Lots of people are being helped out as well. And you can help out those individuals who will utilize March Padness uh, on our website, 900chml.com. Click on the March Padness icon and uh, give where you live, as we say. Olivia, we'll have to leave it there. Um, so appreciative and proud that you launched this so many years ago and it's uh, going strong and not surprisingly so. Thanks for the time today. And thank you. Thank you to everyone who will be able to donate. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.